Grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll be proclaiming God's word today from the Gospel reading, Matthew chapter 1. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. No doubt many of you by now have your nativity scenes out at home as we do here at Bethlehem, of course. As you get those nativity scenes out, as you look at them over this period, there are, of course, all these interesting figures and groups of people that surround the birth of Christ. The angels, the shepherds, the wise men, and of course, usually at the centre, Mary and the Christ child. There is one more figure, of course, that is sometimes a bit more inconspicuous in the nativity scene, and that is Joseph. Today we particularly think about Joseph, about his role in God's plan of salvation of the significance of him, of the birth of Christ from his perspective. We're particularly going to think about the predicament of Joseph, the task of Joseph and the response of Joseph. So first, what is Joseph's predicament? What's his quandary, his dilemma? The facts are simple. He's pledged to be married to Mary. Mary is pregnant. The one thing Joseph knows for sure is that he is not the father. So what to do? This is the position he's in and as we hear, he comes to the decision that divorce is the way to go. That's the simple facts. But we need to delve a bit deeper to see what's actually going on here. And what I want to share with you today is that I think at this point there's actually at least two different ways of understanding what's going on, of reading this situation. I want to share with you both today. The one we most commonly hear, of course, is that Joseph assumes Mary had been unfaithful. Now, this puts him in a difficult place personally, but more than that, according to the law, according to social custom, it would have created big problems for Joseph if he then took her as his wife when people knew she had been unfaithful. So, divorce seems inevitable. The problem for Joseph in this case is that this sort of thing could be punished quite badly according to the law, And Joseph is a righteous man and he's a good and kind and merciful man. So what is he to do? It's a predicament. And so he arrives at this solution which is the best he can work out, arranging a divorce but doing it quietly so as not to create more problems for Mary. Quite a predicament. That's the most common way to read this situation. I think it's the most likely too, but there is another possibility. This possibility many people in the church 
through history have saw as a valid one. Now, in this way of reading the situation, what we assume is that Mary tells Joseph about her visit from the angel, about the conception by the Holy Spirit and here's the key thing, that Joseph actually believes her. That's another way of reading this text. There's a gap there. It could be the case. And the thing to consider here is that Joseph is not a modern materialistic sceptic. He's a faithful, believing, first century Jew who would have been much more open to God's miraculous intervention than people would today. So in this way of reading the situation, what's the predicament of Joseph then? Why would he be thinking about divorce? Well, in this way of reading it, Joseph's predicament is that he is now overwhelmed by the magnitude of what is happening, by what he's being called to do. He feels unworthy by the holiness of this situation. So again, what to do? Okay, divorce and running away from it may not be the best option, but it is the sort of thing the prophets all often felt like doing when God showed up like this. These are two possibilities we can meditate on in this story. Either way, it doesn't really make a lot of difference at the end because whether Joseph is suspicious of adultery or whether he's overwhelmed by the presence of God's holiness, He's in a predicament. He's in a difficult situation not knowing what to do. And at this point it's good to pause and think about the fact that we find ourselves in predicaments often too, don't we? You as the people of God today, in your Christian life, in your families, in your relationships, you have your fair share of predicaments, don't you? And the thing is, if we take our faith seriously, if we want to hear what God has to say and live according to his will, that doesn't necessarily mean we have less of these, does it? In fact, it can often mean we have more of them. Let me give you a very simple, everyday example that perhaps some of you are facing right now. Let's say Christmas lunch this year is scheduled for 1230 at the Rellies place. And the thing is that this part of the family isn't much involved in the life of the church. The problem for you is that it's a two-hour drive. Church here at Bethlehem is at 9.30. Remember that, 9.30. It's a longer service, of course, and so you're thinking by the time we get finished, it's a two-hour drive, am I going to make it? Are they going to be upset when I'm late again? Will they wait for us? All this sort of thing. Now, at one level, this may not sound like a big deal. And granted, when Coptic Orthodox churches are being bombed in Egypt, it does put being late to lunch in perspective a little bit. But still, small though it is, this is a little illustration of the sorts of predicaments our faith constantly raises for us, doesn't it? No doubt many of you have your own right now. 
And in these experiences, it can be simply good to recall that even the holy family of Joseph, Mary and Jesus were not exempt. God's interaction in the world, in this family, was disruptive for them. It was confusing for them, at least at first. And in fact, it gets a lot worse after this because they are forced to flee to Egypt. But notice too that God does not leave Joseph in his predicament. God intervenes through his angel. He reassures Joseph. He comforts him. He gives him a clear word of God about who this child is and where he is from from the Holy Spirit. God enters into Joseph's predicament. Now, we are not promised such extraordinary angelic intervention in all of our difficult situations. But we can be open to God's coming into them in the ways he chooses to lead us through, to work all things for good according to his purposes. This is the predicament of Joseph. Now we move on to the task of Joseph. What is Joseph actually called to do? The reality is that biologically, Joseph is not needed. We confess from this text and from Luke's account that we believe in Jesus Christ our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The Christian church has always confessed that the conception of Jesus was a miracle, that the Son of God became a human being in this world not through the normal processes of man and woman coming together but through the power and work of the Holy Spirit in Mary. So biologically speaking, Jesus had no human father. So what's the task of Joseph? In some sense, you can begin by saying that he's called to be a foster father of sorts, to adopt and care for Jesus and Mary as his own. And he certainly does a good job of that, especially when they go off to Egypt. He's called to raise Jesus, to teach him the law as any other child. Notice too that Joseph is addressed by the angel as son of David. So there's something going on here to do with the fulfilment of the promises made to David. That by Joseph becoming Jesus' legal father, the rightful king of David comes to the throne again. But there's something more specific here in our text. A very specific task that Joseph is given. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you are to name him. To name him Jesus. This is the task of Joseph, particularly here, the naming of this child. Now you've probably noticed that in the Bible, in that time and culture, names seem to carry quite a bit of significance, perhaps a lot more than they do for us today. 
But even today, we still spend a lot of time often thinking about what to name our children, don't we? It's fairly important to us. For example, just imagine if somebody tried to restrict this freedom. Imagine if the government started telling people what they could and couldn't name their children. We'd give up on other freedoms before we gave up on that one, I think. We seem to instinctively know there is something important about our name and so a certain honour and gravity in the giving of a name. This is Joseph's task and what an awesome responsibility it is because for him the freedom of naming is restricted. It's not a name of his own choosing but the name God gives him. You are to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Let's think a little bit more about this name. The name Jesus comes from the Hebrew, the Lord saves. It's so important for us to notice the emphasis in his name on saving. He is the saviour. He comes to work salvation. It's right in his name. That's who he is. That is his work. That is his mission. He comes to save his people. He comes to save you. Now, he does other things. He teaches, he heals, he works miracles, but everything else serves this main purpose of coming to save. This is no small point because just about everyone is willing to acknowledge Jesus in some way as a great teacher, as another spiritual guru or as at least just a nice guy. But the only way according to the scriptures to truly know him is as the Saviour. The reason that's difficult, by the way, is because it also requires realising that your problem is much deeper than you think. So if our problem is only that we need a bit more information in life and a bit more guidance, then Jesus the teacher or the guru will do. But if our problem is that we are actually broken from the core, that we're dying in our sins, then we need a saviour. Did you hear that? What he comes to save from? Many people of that time were hoping for a saviour as they are today. A saviour from the Romans, a saviour from the enemies, a saviour from all the problems out there. But the angel says he comes to save from the problem in here. That he comes to save from sin. He comes to save us from the inside out, if you like. How does he do it? He comes to save you from your sins by taking your sins on himself on the cross and so removing their power. So that I can pronounce to you today that in Jesus' name your sins are forgiven. The Lord saves you from your particular sins. 
He's Jesus the Saviour. And he's also Emmanuel, the God who is with us, the God who is for us. What an awesome task Joseph has, the naming of Jesus the Saviour. Finally then, and more briefly, we'll just note the response of Joseph, which is the obedience of faith. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations until she had borne a son and he named him Jesus. That's it. One of the striking features of both Mary and Joseph in the Christmas stories is that when the angels come with news of Jesus and instructions for them, To use the words of the old hymn, they simply trust and obey. But with Joseph, I think it stands out perhaps even more because in the Gospels, Joseph never says one word. All we have are his actions. His is a life that speaks. Sunday school teachers know that when they're handing out the parts for the nativity play, If you have a young fella who wants to be involved but is not too keen on speaking, you make him Joseph. He doesn't have one line. He doesn't speak in the Gospels because his is a life that speaks. Now notice it's different from the beginning. In the beginning, in his predicament, things were a bit unclear for him. He was unsure. He had to work things out as best he could and choose a course of action. But now with this clear word of God, there's no deliberation, no argument, no second guessing. He simply hears and trusts and obeys. So what about for us? We too find ourselves in situations which are not always clear. It's not always easy to know what God would have us do. Sometimes we are called to use our Christian wisdom to find the best course of action we can. But in my life I've noticed that those situations aren't as common as I sometimes think they are. Often it's me complicating the issue because I'm simply having trouble obeying the simple word of God. Now this obedience is not about being right before God. Paul talks about the obedience of faith today in our Romans reading. We stand right before God by faith which receives his grace but from that faith flows obedience, the obedience of faith. There's time for deliberation and discernment. There's a place for wrestling with God and asking our questions and pouring out our hearts to him. But there's also a time for simple trust and obedience. Just like there's a time for songs of praise. There's a time for telling others of the good news like the shepherds at Christmas. But there's also a time for action and for a life that speaks, for the life of obedience. 
And let us not forget that Jesus says this has power. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The obedience of Joseph. So as you have your nativity scenes out at home over this season, don't forget to spend a bit of time looking at Joseph. He's often there somewhere in the background. Remember the predicament he was in. Remember the awesome task of the naming of Jesus. Remember his obedience and be encouraged in your own Christian life. In the name of Jesus. Amen.